0: Hangout. I'm your host, Whitney Webb. For well over a year, the war in Ukraine continues to rage on with little sign of slowing down. Despite the havoc wrought by the conflict within Ukraine, Western elites and multinational corporations are pouring millions and millions of dollars into the post-war reconstruction of the country while the fighting continues unabated. While that may seem nonsensical to some, the reality is that these actors see Ukraine as the perfect testbed for a host of policies and technologies, particularly invasive surveillance systems that are part of the rollout of the so-called Fourth Industrial Revolution, or 4-IR. While the launch of the quote-unquote Great Reset trumpeted that COVID was the catalyst for implementing these policies and technologies globally, in Ukraine the chaos of the conflict is being used to turn a desperate war-torn country into a 4IR testbed. From digital ID to central bank digital currency to having sold off or outsourced much of its critical infrastructure to Western businesses and tech giants, Ukraine is changing quickly and may soon be unrecognizable. Ultimately, whatever Ukraine is becoming, it is being made to fit the visions of Western elites, like those who populate the meetings of the World Economic Forum and those who sit within the boardrooms of companies like BlackRock. To discuss this and more, I'm joined by Stavroula Papp. Stavroula is a writer, comedian, and PhD student based in Athens, Greece, who has written for the Grey Zone slate and the satire site Reductress, among many others. She has also recently become a contributor to Unlimited Hangout with her new piece covering the very topics we will be discussing today. It is entitled Ukraine's Future Lies in the Great Reset. Thanks for joining me today, Stev Rula, and welcome to Unlimited Hangout. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for writing such a wonderful piece for Unlimited Hangout. So, you detail in your piece, this effort to, quote unquote, rebuild Ukraine is going on before the conflict has even ended, which seems kind of odd. You know, a lot of the investments these people are making because the conflict continues could just be blown up or destroyed by by the conflict. Right. So, you know, what's what exactly is going on here? Who are the main players and what are their goals? And more specifically, do the Ukrainian
1: people have any agency in these decisions? Right. So this is actually one of the main things I I, I discuss in the piece. There's this obsession, I feel, with the reconstruction efforts of Ukraine, even though, again, the war has not ended. We really don't have any idea about how long the war will be going on. But I personally think that this uh, reconstruction obsession is about preparing you know, preparing to ensure that the reconstruction goes on in the elite's interest. And we see this reconstruction effort be led by some of the world's most powerful and, in my opinion, most predatory people who are already preparing to make major investments in Ukraine. Uh, One example of this is, of course, BlackRock's Memorandum of Understanding with uh, Ukraine's uh, Ministry of Economy, and it's a situation where BlackRock is explicitly saying we're going to recreate Ukraine or we're going to reconstruct a new Ukraine. So they're actively telling us right away. Some of the most powerful people and powerful groups in the world, they're actively telling us that this reconstruction is about, um, you know, facilitating a reconstruction of Ukraine in their favor. Uh, I should probably get more specifically into who a lot of these groups are and what exactly it is that they want. Uh, but I guess also something I'd like to say first is that these people already have a lot of power over Ukraine. Ukraine has very, very little sovereignty in the current wartime, and it's functionally lost I think it's lost its sovereignty since the us backed 2014 Euro Maidan. So we're dealing mm-hmm. with a country where Ukraine has very little sovereignty. It's already it's also actually very indebted to the IMF. If I can remember correctly, it's the third largest debtor to the International Monetary Fund at the current time. So essentially Ukraine is already very much hurting. And so uh, the people that are proposing these major transformations, uh, these reconstruction efforts are very much positing that they want this reconstruction to be in the fashion of the Great Reset, and what I mean by that is that they're going to be build a re- they're going to be rebuilding a Ukraine that's uh, pliable to the economic demands of the elite. They want to make uh, Ukraine, especially pliable, t- politically speaking, to a lot of policy instruments, let's say, that makes it much easier to undermine its sovereignty. Uh, Especially what's going on right now in Ukraine specifically is a lot of corporations are really just taking on, they are taking over the war effort in Ukraine. They're doing basically everything except the dying. We uh, We see Amazon and Microsoft both, they're both essentially, they have all of the Ukrainian government's information on their servers in various ways. They're, they're, they literally have ownership over critical infrastructure of Ukraine. Um and I think it's a situation where they understand uh the elite understand that if they push things like public-private partnerships in Ukraine, if corporations take over major wartime efforts now, this is essentially crystallizing a lot of the larger political structures that's critical to the development of the global public-private partnership, right? Where we mm-hmm. have these uh, unaccountable groups, you know, public-private counter- partnerships are essentially situations where uh, corporations take on major aspects of, UK- of Ukraine or whatever's infrastructure, and then it's unaccountable to the public. So essentially what's going on in Ukraine is that we're seeing a number we're seeing the public-private partnership become further crystallized. We're seeing it act- be activated, essentially, in wartime. And it's something where they can consistently do it. They can normalize it. They can show us what power corporations and public-private partnerships have in Ukraine. And it's a situation where if these efforts and if these policy objectives and structures become normalized in Ukraine, I think it's very Easy for them to facilitate that for the rest of us in the future. So, essentially, yeah, it's a hotbed. It's a testing ground. Whatever works in Ukraine now will probably come for us later. So, thinking
0: about how the conflict has played out, of course, we know by now that there's been several efforts, uh, particularly by the UK government and the US government, to essentially egg on the conflict and scuttle um, of, um, scuttle events that could have led to peace in the past, for example. Mm-hmm. So, do you see that sort of as an intentional prolongation that ties into this reconstruction effort since a lot of um, you know, those you know, governments in particular, those countries have a lot of involvement in in this reconstruction process?
1: Uh, personally, yes, I do see it as intentional. I don't think a lot of the world's larger powers want this conflict to end. Um, I think that that's for a number of reasons, but in relation to this and in relation to implementing the Great Reset in Ukraine, I think that they would love for this to continue forever because they know they have the world in a state of crisis through war. They have a world that's now much more pliable to their initiatives. And I think that's especially true in Ukraine. I mean, the longer Ukraine is at war, the you know, the more destroyed it becomes, obviously. And it's a situation where they know that they can essentially push whatever they want in Ukraine. The Ukrainian people have very little sovereignty. And actually, the Ukrainian government has essentially, like, expelled, they've already essentially expelled um, most of the oppositional parties. And my understanding is that Zelensky has also consolidated the media. So they know that they have a very um, ideal situation to be able to continue these efforts at large. All right. So,
0: you know, considering the Great Reset, right? So essentially, that was a campaign launched during COVID-19. And that particular campaign launched by now King Charles and the World Economic Forum um, and supported by other groups you know, this campaign argued that COVID-19 was the catalyst for a series of changes um, that need to be made to all facets of society, right, under the sort of this umbrella of the fourth industrial revolution. But after Mm -hmm. COVID-19 started to wane, and and as the Ukraine-Russian conflict began, there was this new buzzword that came out, and maybe you've heard it, they call it the polycrisis. And it's sort of a way to put, yeah, COVID-19, the Ukraine-Russian conflict, not just within Ukraine and in Russia, but you know, its global impacts on food and energy prices, for example, and much else under one umbrella. And what you know I'm thinking about here in the context of my last question, you have this deliberate effort to prolong the Ukraine-Russian conflict from Western powers, um, a lot of government policy from COVID-19. Uh, Caused a lot of, you know, unnecessarily, we know now, a lot of the damage being blamed on, you know, this poly crisis situation. And so, too, with the Ukraine Russian conflict, a lot of the energy price uh, issues, for example, were policy decisions by groups like the EU to sanction Russia, for example, right? So, again, it, it seems like there's sort of this effort to tell the public that these are inevitable crises that are out of, um, you know, the hands of the elite. But at the same time, a lot of uh, the crises itself, at least in a tangible sense, had been caused directly by um, intentional government policies. A lot of it, of course, from the Western world, but not especially in the case of COVID-19, not exclusive to that. Um, so basically, you know, the way it looks to me, given the the sort of intentionality of creating the poly crisis on the part of a lot of the governments that are affiliated with the World Economic Forum. To me, it sort of seems like, um, as you note in your piece, right, the chaotic, you see a quote, the chaotic ongoings in Ukraine are a microcosm of the larger political moment. And you also refer to the war as the great reset accelerator. I would sort of say that implicit in a lot of what we're seeing right now is essentially a a threat from a lot of these, um, Elites that, um, you know, until you acquiesce to these policies that we want to impose on, you know, the world, essentially, um, or have it be, you know, a, a majority of nations, you know, until that acquiescence takes place, the crises will not only continue, they will get worse. What are your thoughts on that?
1: I really do think that what's going on in Ukraine is a microcosm, as I wrote in the piece, of the larger situation. And I really do agree with the idea that there is intentionality behind this. Uh, Where I live in Greece, uh, this is a situation where they've actively had, they had actively told us earlier in the fall this last year, you know, due to the war in Ukraine, it's quite likely that, you know, you may well face power outages there this could be a situation where food prices go out of out of control you're not going to be able to necessarily be able to pay for things very easily they actively were telling us that that was going to be the situation and it's quite true that every time i go to the grocery store i see things you know i see the prices of items jump almost every single time i really do think that a lot of this is about Um, putting a lot of mental pressure on the population. They're kind of trying to tell us, we don't care if you don't want there to be a war or not. We want there to be a war. The Western powers clearly very much actively want a war. They want to continue the war and due to the war, of course, that means a lot of living conditions are are going to worsen. I think they're making it very clear that they want us to get used to that type of reality, that we can't really resist it. I would actually very much agree with that, and if I can connect that back to COVID, and I suppose that's the point of the World Economics Forum's term polycrisis, we're living in this world where there's just crisis after crisis after crisis and it's horrible, you know, they they essentially forced a lot of us to live with two and a half years of very, very excessive restrictions. And it was a situation where, sure, you know, many of us technically got through it, but it was a very mentally stressful time. And there was obviously duration to that. The lockdowns destroyed a lot of lives. And I, I think that what's happening now is let's say if uh, COVID was some kind of springboard for what was happening, I think that the war is making things even more direct. They're telling you that living standards will get worse as long as this war continues. They're trying to tell you that you have really little say about whether the war is happening or they try to make it sound like you should not be able to fight whether a war is happening or you shouldn't be able to resist or protest in certain ways. And yes, in short, I think that that's very intentional. I think they want us to feel that we can't escape the state of crisis, even though this crisis is something they very much have created. So yes, in short, I find there's a lot of intentionality here, yes.
0: So another thing I I wanted to bring up that you've already sort of touched on, uh, but I I might want to make it a little more explicit, is that, for example, in Western media, uh, we're told all the time and have been over the course uh, of of this conflict, uh, been told that, you know, it's necessary to support the Ukrainian side. You know, and this is why the U.S. and U.K. and other governments have uh, told the public to justify them sending millions upon millions of dollars uh, to the conflict with little traceability and accountability. Uh, That this is necessary to ensure democracy in Europe. And, you know, Putin is literally Hitler and and all of this stuff. Right. Um, And, you know, essentially what you show in your piece is that, you know, this idea that what is really being done by the West in Ukraine is about protecting democracy um, is really hogwash, at least when you consider at least if you want to define democracy as like people having agency and direct involvement in deciding their leaders <laughs> and their policies <laughs> and all of this stuff. And a, a, an example you sort of touched on earlier, for example, is the role of big tech like Microsoft and Google, Silicon Valley companies, right? Having a major role in Ukraine's military operations, the management of the conflict, and also uh, major functions of civilian components of the Ukrainian government. And of course, these companies are not Ukrainian. They're not based in Ukraine. They're not even based in Europe. Uh, They're based on the West Coast of the United States. And of course, they have a very extensive ties to the intelligence services of the United States, particularly Google, having a very well documented relationship with the CIA and Microsoft's uh, collaboration with intelligence. And um, well, and, you know, Israeli intelligence also in the mix there with Israel, all sorts of, um, you know, non-Ukrainian actors really involved. And, you know, as you noted earlier, um, you know, the Ukrainian government under, you know, these policy directives have essentially outsourced uh, most of the functions of not just their military, but also their government to these foreign multinational companies. And people in Ukraine themselves don't have a lot of say over that. And of of course, as we know now, um, or have known for several years, uh, these Silicon Valley companies are increasingly interested in just the Mass harvesting of data. And it seems unlikely um, that Ukrainian people have a lot of say over how their data is is being used, and particularly in the Ukrainian government and military. Um, is there any transparency into how their data is being used? From what I've seen, I, I don't think so. It seems like Google and Microsoft have you know, full control over over that to an extent. So, you know, in, in this type of public-private partnership, uh, like you mentioned earlier, um, what exactly is is going on here? You know, what are the implications for actual democracy in Ukraine?
1: Sure. Um, you know, th- this is a situation. Of course, it's quite complicated and a lot of a lot is happening. In short, I, you know, as we've said, I really don't think any Ukrainians have any real sovereignty. And this is actually a situation. What's really been interesting, though, I, I will say none of this is surprising, is that Zelensky, both he and the Minister for Digital Transformation. Yes, Ukraine actually has a Ministry for Digital Transformation. The Minister for that, who's Mikhailo Fedorov, they're actively going around. They actively show up at any high profile event they can, such as at Davos, such as at um, the Web Summit of last year, to be able to try to get investments and further. Uh, quote-unquote assistance for Ukraine so that they can, you know, essentially try to fight this war. And, of course, they're acting like they are able to win this war. I really do not—I don't know how that would be possible, but it doesn't really change the fact that that's essentially what they're trying to do at every single chance that they're able to get which means that, yes, I mean, a large number of corporations have lined up to help Ukraine, but by helping Ukraine, I would argue that they're essentially Uh, they're essentially taking Ukrainian solid uh, sovereignty, right? Whatever Ukraine's Ukrainian sovereignty exists still, these corporations are eating away with it, with every agreement that is signed. And to be honest, it's to the point that if you were interested in looking up what's going on, you could probably just search for a major corporation and its efforts to assist Ukraine. You will probably find some weird stuff. It is that common, but, um, yeah, essentially, corporations are eating that, or they are taking on what should be government infrastructure in Ukraine. They are taking that over. I'm not really convinced that there's any real transparency on how these corporations are using the information they now have. I mean, based on what I was able to look for, they publish almost nothing. and I'm not surprised that they tell us very little about the transparency of what they're doing because they realize that they don't have to. They understand, I think, very well that this is a wartime situation where uh, it increasingly seems that anything goes. They know that the Ukrainian people are in a state where they can't functionally really ask questions and actually expect somebody to be held accountable. So in short, no, I find that there's very little transparency and I think that there's very little chance for anybody to actually say what they'd like, um, and I actually, I should probably talk a little bit about the Dia app, which I discuss a little bit mm-hmm. in my piece. Uh, Ukraine actually has a state and a smartphone app that encapsulates perfectly what's going on in Ukraine. And this Dia app is, it is a state and a smartphone app, uh, which I find to be quite creepy, to be honest. But okay, it, it, this app facilitates about 120 government services, including digital ID. Um, You can register your business through Dia. You can pay taxes through Dia. Dia has even given like cash payments uh, to people affected by the wartime. Uh, During COVID, Dia had also facilitated vaccination passports as well as like cash payments to people who did get vaccinated. So um, in short, we're seeing a lot of these efforts kind of encapsulate itself perfectly in the Dia app. But I would say that very much DIA encapsulates a lot of what's going on wrong because, you know, you're essentially uh, forcing this government app through. Uh, you're forcing a lot of um tools you 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 know dia is a very easy way to introduce new tools that people may have problems with but you're able to do it quite quickly because you're doing it on a smartphone app right so if dia now holds a digital id which it does it's very difficult to resist that because essentially the Ukrainian government can say, this service is now on Dia. Oh, this service is now also on Dia. We can use Dia however we would like to. And there have been a number of surveillance concerns uh, regarding Dia. I think also there are just general privacy concerns in terms of people's like secure information or very private information is on the DIA app. And I think that early last year, DIA was actually, DIA and a number of other Ukrainian government services had been hacked. And a lot of people's information had actually been compromised, if I can remember correctly. So it's a situation where a lot of the public is being asked to use DIA to do a lot of everyday things. The population is especially asked to use DS since COVID because COVID was a time where you weren't supposed Mm -hmm. to access services in person. So the the population is kind of being slowly coerced into using this this very invasive smartphone app where they really have little say over about how it could be used by the government. And again, just the idea that you would use a state in a smartphone app where you know, who knows about um Dia's ability to surveil the population? And I know this had this came up in my piece also, but funny enough, USAID has supported uh Dia's development. And right now they're actually hoping, or it's it's been announced, Samantha Power had announced at the World Economic Forum earlier this year that She would like to see DIA and DIA equivalents make their way around the world, especially the global south, which I mean, I think that's disgusting, but not really a surprise. And so it's been announced that they will be able to try to bring something like DIA to other countries, whether people like it or not. So in my opinion, DIA kind of encapsulates what's happening. A lot of initiatives are being rammed through quickly. They're being done in this semi-coercive way where maybe your life is harder if you don't go along or if you don't use Dia, for example. You know, it's harder to get by in your day-to-day life if you don't have that digital driver's license, you don't have that digital ID. So I I think a lot of that kind of encapsulates the overall problem.
0: So in my experience in in Chile, and I assume it's probably similar in, in Ukraine, essentially what happens when you have a lot of these government services move online? that you stop being able to conduct them in person as you did before. And this is often uh, very inconvenient uh, for regular people. So for example, uh, applying for residency and things like that in Chile used to be in a government office and because you know allegedly because of the migration crisis it's uh, all online now and a lot more uh messy <laughs> and a lot of times they claim they despite you uploading stuff to their servers they claim to lose your documents and all this stuff but essentially what's hmm. important here is that it's um As they move everything to the digital realm, they tend to remove the equivalent to the physical realm to force you into the digital realm. And it's no surprise that you have a group like USAID, which has been uh, named by numerous groups of, you know, across the spectrum, really, as a cutout for uh, the CIA, that you would have uh, them backing this type of uh, initiative program, uh, because essentially, it's moving it's generating more data and it also makes it much easier to surveil, like you mentioned earlier, uh, what people are doing and, and house a lot of people's sensitive data where they can easily access it. Uh, because, of course, if it's all and all these different servers of different government offices and, um, you know, more decentralized and, you know, it tied up with physical locations and not in a one stop shop digital uh, program like dia, for example it, it's uh, it obviously benefits them a lot more to have it all in one place and something that I've noted as part of the great reset in some past interviews and in some of my past work is that at the same time you have sort of like two parallel operations going on so you know what what we see here and what we've just talked about is this effort to push everything into the digital world, right and so dia mm-hmm. you know government in a smartphone. You know, you have to go into the digital realm to to access these necessary services in order to, you know, uh, interact with the economy or do basic stuff like, you know, drive a car, for example. But this parallel push we're having is to exert increased control over the digital world, the Internet, uh, centralize. Uh, the internet and make it more easily surveillable under the guise of doing things like preventing hacking, stopping cybercrime, censorship to stop foreign malign influence and hate speech and all of this stuff, right? I I see these as intentionally um, an intermingling sort of parallel operation. So you're pushing people into the digital sphere, essentially forcing them there through coercive measures like you just noted, but you're also... um, consolidating control over the digital world in an unprecedented way right so that sort of makes it take on this more i guess nefarious uh, element in a sense uh, and that's why i think stuff like dia is really really disturbing as as you point out and the fact that there's really no public say about it and you know people in ukraine it's a, a war-torn country uh you know people are um Not necessarily in a strong enough position to make their voices heard in this in this government, particularly with, you know, the opposition and the media being under the control of Zelensky, who's very much aligned himself with the Western oligarchs responsible for these policies. It's a very sad situation. Uh, But something complimentary in terms of what we've just been talking about with dia is your discussion of ukraine and central bank digital currencies so can you touch Mm -hmm. on uh that those policies and how they relate to things like the digital id and the dia app and and things of that nature
1: sure uh so i will touch on uh, ukraine cbdc and quickly i do really think that i think it's a little bit hard to say for sure what will happen but I think Ukraine is fairly hell-bent on ensuring it becomes one of the world's most digitized countries. And I actually start the piece off with uh, Mikhailo Fedorov tweeting about this video where where it's about Ukraine 2030, where they're actively telling you they want Ukraine to become a cashless society. They want everybody to be using e-health and education, e-education type services. And now it's become kind of in, the, in in Fedorov's view, it's become essentially this uh, paradise because everyone now has a very convenient life. So they're even using the word cashless there, by the way. So I think that while I don't know for sure, I wouldn't be surprised if they did start trying to remove or making these paper versions of, Services, traditional services, and the digital and and the paper currency. I'm sorry, available to people. You know that they're telling you where they want this to go. They actively talk a lot about where they'd like this to go. And my understanding is that Ukraine is actively trying to portray itself as this very digital, very front. Forward, whatever that means, country that will do anything to be able to prove to the world that it's moved ahead despite this war. And of course, they're acting like Ukraine will win, but that's kind of besides the point. Um, In relation to the CBDC, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on here. Uh, Ukraine does have a CBDC in the works. It's called the E-Hryvnia, and assuming that all goes well with it, this will be launched next year in 2024. Granted, when they say that, I don't know if the war will affect this, but for now, that's what they're trying, they're positing they will do. Now, the E-Hryvnia, there's a couple interesting things I, I did find about it because it would be facilitated by a central bank of Ukraine, but it also would run on uh, the Stellar blockchain or the Stellar blockchain network, I should say. And I think that actually if I I think Stellar is actually worth further investigation because if you want my honest opinion, it's a little suspect, to say the very least. Um, Stellar blockchain is technically a public network, but it's facilitated by the Stellar Development Foundation, which is a nonprofit. And if you look at Stellar. I feel that it very much uses the language of the elite, and it's very much in line, or the Stellar Foundation, Development Foundation, I'm sorry. It's very much in line with the goals of the elite. Uh, If you look at their language that they use publicly, Stellar is aiming to become a global payment standard. And uh, Stellar actually has been slated or it's been selected to become a prospective European stable coin. It's also collaborating with uh, Mercado Bitcoin uh, to help develop a future Brazilian CBDC. And if you look at Stellar's public materials, they actively have decided, you know, it's actively fashioning itself to become the blockchain that CBDCs could be used on. So I think that people listening to this, you know, I think a lot of people are aware of the general dangers of CBDCs. I also would like to say that Stellar, in particular, creeps me out, and it and it is being used here um, in terms of. Uh, this the eKrivnia. Uh, it's obviously part of this larger push towards CBDCs that's happening worldwide, and mm-hmm. I, I do think that the current situation. We can talk a little bit about the general concerns regarding CBDCs, but in this case, you know, because we already have Dia, you know, let's say that the eKrivnia is being launched. We already have Dia, which does already have a digital ID. And another thing about DIA is that a lot of people verify their identity through DIA to do other things. For example, people will verify their identity through DIA to access their banking services, to access the post office. It's even being used for like a chat bot where you uh, can verify that you're Ukrainian, then you can enter the chat bot on Telegram to essentially report on enemy activities. So we're already seeing, this CBDC launch within the context of a country that's first of all very hell-bent on becoming as digitized as possible, as quickly as possible, I should say. And it already has a digital ID. So it seems quite plausible that if there is an e launched, it would quite likely, it could quite plausibly, I should say, be connected to the digital ID because that infrastructure already exists. Um, that's, I wouldn't be surprised to see any of that considering the general drive that's ongoing in Ukraine. They're very much hell bent on trying to move as quickly as possible so that there is little say for about any of the possible dangers that this could pose to the population. I think that your ob- audience is very aware of the possible dangers regarding CBDC, but I think in particular, we're concerned about, you know, first of all, it's programmability, and second of all, it, it being tied to your identity. And, you know, essentially uh, this digital ID and the eCribnia being tied to a lot of basic information about you. So if one day we were to program a CBDC, it would quite be quite easy to say, okay, you know, this is this citizen, this person does or doesn't follow rules. This will therefore determine their level of access to goods or services. I unfortunately think that a lot of general concerns regarding CBDCs I'm very concerned for them in this case because it's, again, a situation of wartime. It's a situation where a war-torn country has very little say in what's going on. And like I've said, it seems that the Ukrainian government is very much interested and pushing forward as quickly as possible. They don't want discussion. They want to look like they are the most advanced on earth. So I think this is a situation where priorities are clearly not about listening to people. Priorities are about moving these agendas as quickly as possible, which very much means that if we see a CBDC, I fear very much that it will be linked to digital ID and the other software or the other initiatives that the Ukrainian government is moving forward.
0: Well, I think you're absolutely right about that, because from what I've seen um, with, you know, the push to increasingly digital, uh, you know, make currency digital and move to sort of the CBDC or or pre-CBDC paradigm, one of the ways they're trying to uh, sell it isn't just convenience, right? It's also stuff like uh, safety from hacks, that your money's safe. And the Mm -hmm. main way they're pitching that is to tie it to some sort of, Identity and a lot of that, you know, um, I mentioned on a recent interview that uh, one contributor to Unlimited Hangout recently told me that uh, I shouldn't that he had to change banks because they were requiring uh, him to use bio, his biometrics to even be able to access his own money. So, you know, wow, that's even before a CBDC has been rolled out. And this is, you know, a, a private commercial bank uh, making that. So it's very plausible, too, that, you know, when the CBDC is rolled out in order to access it, you'll have to prove it's really you. And what better way to do that than the g- digital ID, right? And there's plenty of um groups out there that have already pushed for the idea of having them completely tied together. And actually, the UN has been pretty explicit about this they had a, a working paper um that they called the people's money uh, <laughs> a silly <laughs> wow. a very misnamed paper yes uh but it's talking about how you know in order to foster uh include you know the cbdc and all of this is necessary for fostering financial inclusivity and all of this stuff and that in order to move finances to an increasingly digital uh, you know the the digital realm it's necessary to have it also tied to digital id i mean they make that very explicit and they also tie that interestingly enough explicitly to the sustainable development goals which uh, broadly speaking are part of agenda 2030. So it's interesting what you mentioned with Ukraine 2030, you know, it's uh, essentially the same. And it's interesting, too, because when people think of, oh, sustainable development goals, sustainable development, um, they don't necessarily see that as meaning turning everything digital. Right. But to the UN, if you actually dig into the sustainable development goals in Agenda 2030, they're actually quite explicit um, about a lot of that and, and frame it as more, quote unquote, sustainable. But, you know, that's debatable. And one of the mm-hmm. ways they, they tend to do this is by claiming somehow that. Um, that making everything digital is somehow greener. And this is oddly something that is also being in a sense, uh, you know, piloted in Ukraine, because as you note in your piece, um, there's this big push by Zelensky and also by um Western billionaires uh, to turn Ukraine into the quote world's first green digital economy and um uh, the fastest growing economy in Europe per Zelensky. And one of the, Um, ways this is allegedly going to be accomplished is through this entity that you wrote about called the Ukraine Green Growth Initiative, Mm -hmm. uh, which was launched by uh, Australian mining magnates Andrew and Nicola Forrest, Forrest with two R's. So um, what can you tell us about Ukraine's vision not to just be Um, you know, in almost entirely digital, faster than anybody else, uh, but also greener than anybody else. And if this is actually uh, correlated with environmental justice in any capacity or just a talking point.
1: Um, In short, I would have to say this is more or less a talking point. It's actually interesting that you had brought up... um, you know, this push for digitalization and green at the same time. Because when I was doing research for this piece, I had actually seen some people use the phrasing twin transition, where there's two prongs of like the digital transformation being paired with a green transformation. So they're kind of actively trying to show you or the elites are actively trying those trying to tie those two transitions uh, together with their language. So that was something I actually found very interesting when I was doing my research for this piece. Uh, in terms of the Ukraine Green Growth Initiative, well, there's that initiative, which is an investment fund, and there's just so many other, um, you know, green reconstruction plans that I find to be very disingenuous to say the very least. And of course, a lot of this is again being tied into the reconstruction being planned for Ukraine. Again, as we had said earlier, they're talking about reconstruction way before the war is even over. And they're very much talking about reconstruction in ways that are green. Uh, I typically wouldn't recommend people do a Google search, but I think in this case, it's kind of interesting to see what weird search results Google's going to give you in terms of the elite's plans. You know, There's just so, if you look it up like green reconstruction Ukraine, green future Ukraine, you'll just see dozens of articles saying why Ukraine's transition should be green. Um, there's been this idea that a green Marshall plan should be packaged together for Ukraine. And um, I think in all of these cases, it's very disingenuous, but what's consistent is a transformation of society being positive, right? This reconstruction is a perfect chance to transform Ukraine in ways that are green. And within the context of consistent predatory behavior from the green elites, where things like decarbonization or other green targets are kind of being used as uh, bludgeons to get... You know other countries to do what they'd like. I think the same thing is going on in initiatives like the Ukraine Green Growth Initiative. It's an investment fund as you said and it's an investment fund where I think the forests had put like 500 million US dollars into it and I think that they are hoping that they will get a billion in supposed green investments. Um, obviously this is being put forth by some of the world's most predatory, um, elite like BlackRock's Larry Fink, uh, Michael Bloomberg and Joe Biden, uh, former UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, all of these people were consulted in the process of establishing this investment fund, if that tells you anything in the first place. Uh, If we're talking investments and we're talking the world's most predatory people, I think what we need to understand right away is that the green elite have a history not as altruists, but as people that are looking for uh, returns on their investments, right? I think that if they're putting this level of money into Ukraine, they're essentially saying, we're investing now to ensure that Ukraine and Ukraine's future is the way that they want it. And I think they're especially interested in using these green targets and these green initiatives to ensure these transformations go this their way. I actually, um, in terms of the green growth initiative, it's interesting because they're talking about transforming basic infrastructure. So um, they're saying they're going to focus on infrastructure basics like energy and communications. And they actually talk in the one of the press releases, I think, about building a digital green grid, quote, so Ukraine can become a model for the world as a leading digital green economy. And there again, we're seeing digital and green being put together at at the same time i think they're trying to show you very much that we're going to do the green transformation and the digital transformation at the same time and i don't i'm not an expert in terms of what digital green grid means but if you look into it a little bit further this digital green grid that they're positing they're going to use the, these investments to build you know it leverages things like artificial intelligence Um, And the internet of things, you know, they actually use the word internet of things to describe how the digital green grid is, I guess, going to be able to optimize production, energy construction in real time to be able to reduce waste or maximize efficiency. So they're kind of pushing forward these very advanced technologies that I think a lot of the population would find quite problematic. The idea Mm -hmm. that you're going to undermine the current infrastructure. Okay, I guess some of it's probably getting destroyed by the war, but they're using these investments to put forth these technologies. They're pushing forth these transformations in ways, again, that the population has little say over. And again, I think in all of this Unfortunately, green is really just being used as a bludgeon. It's a way to get the population, both in Ukraine and elsewhere, to agree with what's going on. You know, you want to help us save the environment, right? So you're going to agree with me, the billionaire, and my desire to transform society. But it's actually about transforming society into the one they want, where they have the say, not the general population. So, in short, yes, I, I do think that these green initiatives. They are unfortunately very disen- disingenuous. I mean, it's very upsetting to be honest because it's it's we're essentially being told we need to give up a lot of things to meet these targets. We're not really being asked what our opinion is and the Ukrainians especially are, are not being asked. So yes, they are using this as kind of a bludgeon to be able to accelerate their goals for Ukraine. So, you know, it
0: seems to me like, and I've seen this too, not just in Ukraine, but elsewhere with a lot of these same billionaires you've mentioned, like Mike Bloomberg, for example, who's a UN special envoy, and Mark Carney, the former Goldman Sachs and central banker, who... runs a lot of the climate finance stuff uh, Mm -hmm. for the UN. Ultimately, you know, the digital green grid being built by these billionaire investment funds with billionaire money, uh, they're going to essentially be the owners of that grid and are going to get a massive return on investment from it. And this is being framed as philanthropy. But if you look at people like Bill Gates, for example, that's also in this space through a breakthrough energy, energy ventures, and, and things like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's been very open in the past several years that his whole approach to quote unquote philanthropy is about maximizing return on investment. So essentially what's been done over the past several decades, largely because of PR is that there's been a real redefinition of what philanthropy means uh, in practice, but for the public, most people continue associating the term with altruism. And Mm -hmm. this has led us to this current point where, uh, Because of that, a lot of these billionaires, what they're doing now with building things like a digital green grid in Ukraine and and elsewhere is being framed again as altruistic um, about concern out of the planet. But there's not really that much evidence that it will be really that green, uh, and other people, uh, including myself, uh, but, you know, people like Corey Morningstar, for example, who you reference in your piece, um, have made it very clear that a lot of the, uh, particular, um, power generation technology these people want to invest in, uh, requires a lot of mining of minerals that is going to totally decimate the global South, particularly the Andes and South America and much of Africa. And, um, for people familiar with how that mining takes place and how workers are treated and the environmental and social costs it's definitely not um green uh really at all um or at least you know any sort of green benefit definitely uh, is is sort of swallowed up by the enormous environmental and social cost in the places where the mines actually exist so you know, again, I sort of see this as more PR speak to sort of, again, uh, cover up the fact that what they want to do was create a digital grid and a digital economy. But by adding green to it, uh, they're able to sort of tie in the sustainable development goal Uh, PR spin. And like I mentioned earlier, the UN's been very specific about framing uh, completion and implementation of the SDGs with moving into this completely digital paradigm. And I think one of the reasons they're so interested in, in focusing on energy and stuff like that is because a lot of the model a lot of these elites want to follow is essentially technocracy, which is all about Um, essentially, it's essentially a new economic paradigm where it's not really about money, it's about energy, and how much Mm -hmm. energy you spend. And so when you recreate a digital green, uh, you know, a digital power grid of a completely different type, it seems like the way they're trying to remake it is those is so that they can better track uh, who is using what amount of energy, and they can You know, manage it that way. And of course, a lot of it today uh, will be most likely managed by artificial intelligence and things of that nature, whereas technocracy in the past, obviously emerging in the 30s and developing in the decades after that, you know, technology wasn't at the same level it is today. So a lot of what they theorized about uh, is, is a little different from how it's implement- being implemented right now. But I think ultimately, you know, th- there's a lot of that there. And then also when you're talking about these, quote unquote, green economies and development, there's also this major effort to include things like natural capital, um, things like um, carbon markets and all of the stuff, basically creating giant new markets Um Uh, that are based around the natural world and don't necessarily protect the natural world, but they certainly are uh, poised to make a lot of powerful people a lot of money as the SDGs roll out. So, You know, I definitely see a lot of this stuff, particularly some of the things you wrote about, as it relates to "quote unquote" green growth uh, of Ukraine, sort of falling under these same uh, under these same measures. And I think it it will likely also tie in with some other aspects um, of what's going on in Ukraine that you wrote about. For example, the the buying up of farmland and and things of that nature will, of course, inevitably be tied into the same system because, as you note in your piece, a lot of the same uh, people buying up the farmland. kind of on board for this broader digital, quote unquote, green transformation.
1: Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think, I guess the best way to put a lot of this is that I'm unfortunately not surprised by any of it. And I think it's all... I think it's all unfortunately happening in a perfect war- way in Ukraine because they know they have us in a state of crisis and they know that they have had Ukrainians in a state of crisis. I didn't touch on this in the piece, but I'll have to share it with you. I have been doing some looking into, like, you know, Ukraine's plans to be green and actually at COP27 I know that the UNDP Ukraine had hosted some kind of seminar where they're actually discussing uh carbon markets for example so there there's active talk about a lot of the initiatives you had just described even though they didn't actually make it into my final yeah, piece
0: it's yet. everywhere <laughs>
1: yeah and i yeah and i think that they are very interested in developing green tools for Ukraine and green economic or banking tools for Ukraine's future. Um, You know, and it it all sounds very nice. And I almost I don't know how to word it. I almost feel like they're trying to use this flowery language to wash us out, to confuse us all out. But uh, the idea that any of this is about sustainability is just a big lie. And I think it's all very disingenuous in terms of like um, the the buying out of of a farmland, I mean, I was kind of I would not say I was shocked by it, but it, it's unfortunately par for the course. What's going on there that I find not surprising again is that you know major agribusinesses, major financial groups like Vanguard, BNP Asset Management Holding. Um, there's there's a couple other major Ukrainian agribusinesses that have also bought up a lot of the farmlands. What's interesting about that is actually a lot of these groups I just discussed are indebted to groups like the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development and Development and the European Investment Great Investment Bank the um, International Finance Corporation, which is an arm of the World Bank. So you're seeing a situation where like oligarchs are buying up Ukrainian farmlands. But in turn, those oligarchs and agribusinesses are actually indebted to the world's major financial institutions. And I, I think what's important to say here or an important note is that the an institute called the Oakland Institute had published a report on this and they actually note that a large a lot of major agribusinesses buying up Ukraine's farmlands are actually indebted to major world institu- world financial institutions so they're indebted to like the World Bank for reconstruction and development Uh, The IFC or the International Finance Corporation, which is an arm of the World Bank. So we're essentially seeing a situation where oligarchs are buying up Ukrainian farmland, but in turn, these oligarchs and agribusinesses buying up the farmland are indebted to the world's major financial groups. And if that's the case, the Oakland Institute posits that, you know, these major financial institutions have a major say and now major stakes in what happens to the farmlands. So it's it's just another situation where we're seeing the world's largest financial institutions, the world's power elite, just finding every different way they can think of to get a stake in Ukraine's future, so that Ukraine's reconstruction is the type of reconstruction that they would like. I don't think it takes a genius to posit that, um, you know, the, the reconstruction that they posit is a reconstruction that is about them and about the society that they would like to create.
0: Yeah, well, it seems like, you know, with, with these particular actors using the con- the crisis, you know, the conflict in Ukraine to rebuild it this way, I think it's pretty fair to say that uh, whatever crises, you know, in anywhere else will be used in a similar fashion. To rebuild, mm-hmm. to reconstruct, to make society more just and inclusive—I mean, it doesn't really matter. Um, they can make uh, any crisis, you know, fit the <laughs> uh, the talking points. I think at the at the end of the day. So, um, one last question as we wrap up here. Um, a lot of the policies we've been talking about in Ukraine, including CBDCs uh, and and biometric stuff and all of that, um, they're not just, they're also advancing in the country that Ukraine is fighting as part of this conflict in Russia. So what are your thoughts about, you know, Ukraine and Russia being locked in this, this prolonged conflict, but a lot of the um, same policies are sort of being uh, rolled out in both countries?
1: Uh, Sure. I mean, I I think that this is something that I've thought about a long time and it's something where I wonder what if I will agree completely with what I say today. But I think what I I would have to say today is that, you know, while it does seem there are some there are genuine hostilities between the world's most powerful nations, it is true that there is a war going on, but it doesn't really change the overall reality where these countries uh, they agree more on the Great Reset initiatives than they disagree, right? They are more in agreement ultimately at the end of the day, despite the fact that we have this major war ongoing. That's essentially the way I, I see this conflict. And I I can understand that the World Economic Forum has technically banished Russia from its I don't. It's events. I don't know from being part of the World Economic Forum, but that doesn't change the fact that you, Russia, at the end of the day, agrees with a lot of what's going on. I know that they are currently working on a CBDC. Um, I know also, I think we can also say from experience that Russia was more or less on board with a lot of the COVID restrictions. Mm -hmm. It was on board more or less with the, the vaccination passports and mandates that were ongoing. So I think that this is a situation where we can... In my opinion, we can say that perhaps there are genuine hostilities between the powers, but that doesn't change the fact that these countries ultimately agree or they've been forced to agree for one reason or another. I mean, the sovereignty of many countries has been undermined at this point. I personally have not been to Russia. I don't necessarily know what the mood is there regarding both the war, but also uh, the the, genu- the the general feel that a lot of policy initiatives are coming from the top down. Um, while I don't know for sure, I'm not in a position to say that I feel they will meaningfully resist this. Maybe individuals will resist it there, just like individuals resist these initiatives in all countries. But for me, when I look at the situation, My understanding of the conflict or my understanding of the conflict being a proxy where where there are genuine political geopolitical tensions does not override this overall uh, move towards a technocracy or this overall move towards uh, stakeholder capitalism.
0: Well, what concerns me is that, you know, Russia and some of its allies and, and BRICS and, you know, the multipolar order, as as some have called it, are, are very much committed also to Agenda 2030 and the Sustainable Development Goals, which, uh, as, as we've talked about, um, you know, sort of entail a lot of these same policies uh, that are under scrutiny in, in your piece about Ukraine specifically. And, you know, I think ultimately some of the um, actual, you know, reasons for hostilities between these groups is about whether it will continue to be, you know, this Agenda 2030 uh, paradigm, whether it will continue to be dominated by the unipolar, so-called unipolar order, i.e. the West, the Anglo-American alliance and whatnot, or whether it will be uh, more dominated by, you know, the BRICS countries, but a more like multipolar uh, paradigm, as it's called, but necessary. You know, at the end of the day, um, the Sustainable Development Goals and Agenda 2030 are ultimately about technocracy, uh, in a nutshell. When, when you start to look into them and who's building it, um, why so many billionaires are involved in it, um, why they're pushing to digitalize uh, absolutely everything under the guise of it being sustainable, when that's not the same thing as sustainable, and. And all of this stuff, you know, it seems to me, uh, at least personally, um, more like who's going, you know, w- w- you know who's going to be on the top and what the uh, how power will be divided in this coming technocracy, right? Um, mm-hmm. As opposed to really being opposed to the, you know, the technocracy itself, right? Um, but again, you know, it, it's obviously a really complicated thing to unpack. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of questions being raised on on all different sides about the nature of the Ukraine-Russia conflict as it wears on because, you know, it was a wrench, you know, a lot of people thought it was going to end much sooner because Russia's military is, is so large and the way the, so, you know, quote-unquote special military operation was described a lot of people thought it would happen faster and people are puzzled uh why it's been so prolonged and now you have these statements from the head of the the wagner group saying he's been essentially denied ammunition and and things like that by the russian military i mean there's a lot of weird things um going on and i honestly don't think any one person can really make sense of it all um at this point Mm -hmm. in time because there's just so many data points and so many moving parts but the fact that you have um you know, Ukraine with the Western elites behind them so committed to Agenda 2030 and the SDGs, and then you have Russia and, and China and Brazil and, and the BRICS nations similar being, similarly being so committed to them as well. You know, there seems to be, again, a lot of agreement about how to move forward, just not so much about how power will be shared. Uh, you know, that's just my opinion. Um, I don't know. Do you want to add anything to that or...
1: Um. Yeah, I guess the only thing I really have to say about that, maybe a couple of things is, I mean, yeah, and this has kind of changed or challenged my politics a lot over the last couple of years, essentially yeah, because I, I, yeah, I mean, I really don't see the BRICS block opposing a lot of these things in fundamental ways or meaningful ways and I think the same thing had happened during COVID, right? I mean, a lot of these policies were so top down and it really didn't matter which country you were in. Generally speaking, everybody went pretty universally towards them. And, you know, the idea that BRICS can offer an actual alternative or meaningful challenge to the Uniparty, let's, I don't know how else to describe it, to be honest. I, I'm increasingly skeptical of that as time goes on because I don't see them challenge a lot of the main uh, initiatives that are pr- are part of the Great Reset. You know, they are also developing CBDCs. They're also quite happy, you know, they're quite happy with a lot of these um, basic things that I, I personally have a lot of issues with in terms of just what I consider dignified life, where I have the ability to say, you know, this this is what I'd like, this is what I wouldn't like. And I think a lot of people that are still kind of on the BRICS team, they either downplay the possibility for abuse, a lot of these measures um, imply, or they almost say that they are a good thing. And so I'm increasingly skeptical, first of all, uh, personally, I should say, but again, it is a very complicated situation. Uh, I didn't even know the tidbit about the, the the Wagner group, actually, I didn't know that. So that was a fun thing to learn just now. So that's kind of my thought there. I guess one other quick point I'd like to say is that I find it, I don't know if it's surprising or not, but you know, of course, when I was doing research for this report, I just had to look through so much media where Ukraine's prospects for victory are being discussed. And everyone writing about Ukraine's prospects for victory, if, if they belong to the elite political class, if you can call it that, they seem so steadfastly... um They seem very obstinate about the idea that Ukraine will win no matter what. And I don't know if this is a silly observation or not, but it's really starting to bother me that they keep saying that because if I look at the objective situation, it just seems that this is going to go on for a long time. I don't necessarily see a clear uh, window for Ukraine to win. And so it just really freaks me out to continue to see that juxtaposition of um, you know, a military conflict that could take a very long time, unfortunately, to lead to a large loss of life. And then this just arrogant attitude from the West that Ukraine will definitively win. Ukrainian Ukraine is definitely winning right now. It, it creeps me out and I don't really know if there's anything to be made about that specifically.
0: Well, I think that's probably a good place to leave it. I mean ultimately at the end of the end of the day, it's hard to know exactly what's happening at, at any given time, but I think what's important and what I appreciate, uh, you for is, you know, ha- keeping an open mind as these developments uh, show themselves. Because like you, you know, I definitely had very different uh, views on on this particular matter, com- uh, you know, compared to when I, I, you know, before COVID and when I worked for for Mint Press and all of that was re- you know, really focused on reporting about U.S. empire and, and, you know, the military industrial complex and proxy wars, U.S. foreign policy. Uh, but, you know, over time, especially with COVID, it's just become so puzzling. Like, why are they uh, increasingly acting like they're on the same team and all of this stuff? And, you know, how opposed are they to a lot of these, you know, apparent, in my opinion, tyrannical uh, measures and policies? You know, it is a really confusing time. But, you know, the best we can really do as, as journalists is to keep an open mind and just report the facts and and try and, you know, Um, Adjust our analysis accordingly and and invite our, you know, uh, our audiences to sort of ask, you know, critical questions and think critically about, um, you know, the information as it comes out and, and, you know, these developments as we're moving into these uh, very crazy and unprecedented times, Mm -hmm. because it seems to me that a lot of people. Uh, in particularly, independent media have remained sort of locked into some of this pre-COVID, um, you know, geopolitical understanding, in a sense. Um, sure. Yeah, and I can understand why that might be, because it's certainly, you know, maybe more familiar for a lot of people and easier to make sense of things. But that doesn't necessarily mean that's what the the facts on the ground are reflecting at any given time. So it, you know, it's always important to keep an open mind and be willing to sort of challenge your own perspectives and and views about geopolitics and and other matters of, of note, you know, because, um, Man, I mean, a lot of stuff that's gone in the past few years, I don't think really anyone (laughs) really expected, but it certainly has uh, given us a a lot of new information to work with. And if your ultimate goal is to get to the truth of the matter, um, you know, I mean, we have to be willing to uh, readjust and and reassess uh, the, uh, you know, the situation as more information uh, becomes available to us, right?
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think for myself, yeah, I mean, COVID was personally, a it was a very big turning point because I know I fell for it for a few months. I don't know how else to word it. Yeah, I fell for for a little while. And then kind of when I realized the damage that lockdowns were doing to society and realizing that a lot of people were just outright ignoring the dangers of these top-down measures, I mean, it kind of forced me to ask questions like, why is everybody doing this at the same time? And does this mean that these powers agree more than they disagree? And if they agree more than they disagree, that's a big deal. And I, as a journalist, (laughs) have to be very open to that. I I really try to be very open-minded because I understand that I was—I definitely was fooled. uh, But I, I think it's very critical at this stage when it's very hard to say what will happen. I mean, it really feels that all things are kind of a go for the Great Reset and all things are kind of a go for this big transition or transformation of society. So at such a a critical time, the best thing that I think we can do is be careful about jumping to conclusions about what any one country will or won't do. And to be, try to be, yeah, just try to keep an open mind. That's what I've been trying to do. And in my reporting, I've been trying to, be honest about that. I I want to, I want to understand why do these countries agree more than they disagree? And what does that actually mean for our future? So yeah, in short, I I agree with you.
0: All right. Well, that's probably a good place to leave it. So thanks so much for coming on. So uh, for everyone listening, can you let us know um, how we can follow your work and support you?
1: Sure. Uh so you can follow me on Twitter at stavrula.papst and it's all lowercase. I also do have a substack. Um it's just stavrulaps at substack.com. And um I I to be honest, anybody following me, anybody sharing my work, that's the best way to to support me at this time. You're also welcome to give me donations or you know, subscribe to my Substack either for free or paid. I am an early career journalist. So any support and sharing my work is actually very appreciated at this time. Thank you.
0: Oh, thank you. And thanks to everyone uh, for listening, hopefully sharing this podcast around. And uh, as always, a big, very special thank you to people who support this podcast. So uh, thanks so much, everybody, and catch you all on the next episode.